0: On this episode of Anything Goes Hokkaido, we welcome Matthew Jones, professional photographer, cameraman, and video editor, and also former ALT or assistant language teacher with the JET program. Matthew has a wonderful perspective on what it's like to live and teach and work in Hokkaido, not only for the government through the ALT JET program, but also filming videos for the Hokkaido government and the nature department. His work takes him all over Japan, especially this island, and he's one of the most well-traveled people that I know, not only through his work, but his adventurous spirit. You're sure to enjoy this episode and learn a lot. I know that I did. Sit back, relax, and enjoy, this time with Matthew Jones and the Anything Rose Hokkaido video and audio podcast. Welcome to Anything Goes Hokkaido video and audio podcast. Uh, I'm Delina Miyazaki and today it's just me. My co-host Shinya is not available. So we're going to be interviewing Matthew Jones, who has been a resident in Hokkaido for how long
1: now have you been Four here? Four years.
0: Four years. Ah, oh, such a newbie.
1: Yep, actually, yep. I
0: think you've got more experience with uh, traveling around Hokkaido and uh, some other unique things than anybody I know.
1: Really? Interesting. I don't have... I think there's probably people that you know that have more experience than me.
0: Well, maybe just because of their their length of time here, but in in the short time you've been here, well... In
1: the short time that I've been here, I have certainly made my rounds around the the island quite a few times.
0: Okay, so let's kind of back up and start at the beginning. Like, uh, what brought you to Japan and specifically Hokkaido in the first place?
1: Uh, so the the initial thing that brought me to Japan in terms of having an interest in Japan was um, I think probably like many people in some degrees a kind of a, a combination of of being interested in Japanese culture from experiencing it through Some, some to some degree anime a lot of people know Hayao Miyazaki's films uh, Kind of in, in middle school is the first time I ever had any contact with that and found it really interesting in a way that it just kind of presented art and presented even the musical quality of it in a way that you don't really encounter in, uh, maybe you'll find it more often now, but I would say probably 10 to 20 years ago, you certainly wouldn't encounter it very often in American media. And then in addition to that, I had met some Japanese friends at a summer camp that I went to in Colorado when I was in middle school Uh, and their English ability was, was pretty limited. My Japanese ability was totally non-existent (laughs) however despite that we were able to kind of build an immediate friendship faster than i had experienced with most other people and at the end of the summer camp they all performed there was a group of them from fukuoka about 15 students performed the uh the yosakoi dance which is pretty famous as a traditional dance in, in all all out through japan uh and i remember there's something aesthetic about the dance that I really was kind of struck by and really, really stuck with me for a long time. So, in mm-hmm. college, I majored as an international relations major, and you have to take language studies as a requirement to graduate. So, I decided to take Japanese as something I'd always been interested in, but growing up kind of in a rural Colorado area was never available to me.
0: Sure, sure. Um, mm-hmm. The languages available to me as well were very limited in my school yeah. I
1: was
0: like, I oh, yeah. would have totally taken Japanese had it been available.
1: Had it been available, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I took Spanish, which I have no regrets about, but it's difficult to use out here.
0: Well, yeah, I also took two years of Spanish in high school simply because I lived in Florida and I thought it would be practical, but it really didn't <laughs> help foster uh, many conversations in real life.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably something you encounter as an english teacher in japan as well uh, Mm -hmm. for me as an high schooler taking spanish i was not particularly interested in learning spanish which uh has a significant impact on your ability to actually learn a language of the degree and interest you have in it now now going back to the us i would love to continue taking spanish i think Mm -hmm. it would be kind of a, a beautiful language to learn and certainly would open up a lot more conversations
0: Right. Uh, yeah, same now here. as an
1: adult. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that experience though for me as an English teacher as well was helpful in understanding my students who are yes. maybe in the situation where they don't want to be taking English classes, uh, necessarily and trying to find ways to do it better or get yes. get them mm-hmm. interested, or at least make it not be boring textbook style. <laughs> Okay, Certainly. so you had the advantage of being in the slightly younger generation and having exposure to Miyazaki Hayao movies and animation and Japanese culture. There was none of that when I was living in the U.S. I think yes, Power Rangers I was probably the only.
1: <laughs> yes, and thing I grew up loving Japanese. Yes, I loved the Power Rangers growing up, and only after moving to Japan found out that it was. Of Japanese influence that brought it to the U.S. I had no idea that it was based off of you know Kamen Rider and all of those kind of classic Japanese shows here.
0: I don't know why, but I think I, I picked up on that a little bit just from watching the show. Like they had the the American version where the the acting they when they were yeah. in their costumes that they were actually like American actors and that yes. was very Americanized, you know, with the production. Yes. But then you just jump into this totally Japanese. Common writer style fighting scenes and the monsters. It's like, okay, this is not normal, but cool. Yeah,
1: yeah but it's certainly not found in other other children's shows. I mean, no. if if you go back and watch something like Godzilla, now it's very <laughs> obvious. Oh, absolutely, this is you know a Japanese TV show. But as a six-year-old, I had no comprehension of that.
0: Right. I, I was in high school when those first started coming out. Uh, but yeah, like I came here with, I did. There was no Google, there was no YouTube. Um, mm. I knew nothing about Japanese culture other than just the typical stereotypes.
1: Yeah, uh, I can I... imagine that for you coming in a kind of in the beginning when there was no Google Translate, mm. uh, you weren't able to walk around with a smartphone and nope. decode <laughs> all of the signs with your your no. phone camera. That it would have been. How much, perhaps, did you find it isolating at first, when you first came to Japan?
0: Well, in a way, I I guess it was because I lived on the outskirts of Sapporo. And uh, I spent my first 10 days in Japan actually traveling with a group of musicians doing kind of tour. And uh, so we were five days in Tokyo and five days in Osaka. Mm-hmm. And just to time reference it, the first day in Osaka was 9-11. So we were eating dinner after the concert. It was yeah. my first time to ever try curry rice or any kind okay. of curry in my life. Yes. When I was 21. And uh, <laughs> we, there my team leader, she was Japanese, and she had one of those like little stick cell phones. Yes. Um, and a little message went across saying that an airplane had hit the Twin Towers. And that's all we knew. And I... I was imagining like a Cessna plane or something bouncing off the side and yes. it wasn't until the morning when we, we got up and went out uh, of where we were staying that we saw the newspapers and the headlines and yeah, you know it was just all TV news and that kind of thing and I didn't even know what was really happening until I was riding the airplane up to Hokkaido um, five days later and mm-hmm. finally like got to watch news on TV in the airplane. And uh, yeah, it was a bit crazy then, and I came up to Sapporo and was living on the outskirts and didn't go anywhere or do anything for the first few days, except my roommate took me to the onsen the first night. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, uh, the onsen is a hot spring where you get naked in a public bath with people that you do not know, which is easier than getting naked with people you do know, I think, if you're not used to it.
1: It's also very different being naked in a culture where it's not
0: taboo or...
1: scene exactly it's not taboo but it's also it's not even thought about as being particularly different mm. Every, everybody's there naked in, in the atmosphere of this is the atmosphere where everybody should be naked yeah so you you don't have this sense of people looking at you like that right. guy's here why is he here it, right. it's, no this is just normal
0: and that's that's a keyword where you should be naked so for me it was extremely liberating coming okay. from the u.s in a culture where you do see nudity in like movies yes. and sometimes yeah. now, TV especially, but those bodies in you know the, the productions and the magazines, they're perfect. Mm-hmm. Whether it's from Photoshop or just being genetically lucky. Yes. And then you don't like you never see normal, everyday average bodies in the nude. Yes. And so you look at your own body and just go, what's wrong with me? And especially I, like a girl growing up with those kind of complexes, it was so liberating to see all the little old obajans we call them, the little old grandmothers and the younger women and like all these body types and the battle scars of having children or surgery yes. or, and nobody's looking at each other like judgmentally or, or Absolutely. anything. It's just yeah. like, it was so liberating to see normal bodies and then think, I'm not nearly as bad as I thought or... The only weird thing is occasionally you will find people that want to practice their English we'll yes. try and talk to you while you're naked yes. in the back.
1: I have had that many, many mm. times. Not Me every too. time. It's not every time I go if that happens, but yeah. once in 10 times when yeah. sitting there and you're, especially yeah. the longer that you've been in Hokkaido, you start to go to onsen with mm. with that real mentality of I'm going to take a break from life. Mm -hmm. just kind of sit down and relax and then you kind of close your eyes and then somebody kind of merges their way over and says oh where are you from and then you're like I'm from Sapporo and then you kind of have this moment where they're like that wasn't the answer that I was expecting and then they ask again no but where are you from and then you know they want me to say something like the US or or England or Australia yeah
0: yeah I do the same response I'm from Sapporo (laughs)
1: yes
0: (laughs) Um, sometimes I'm generally I'm perfectly happy to talk to people. I really am a mm-hmm, people person who enjoy that. Um, and I've made yeah. some actually really good friends from that kind of connection. In fact, I'm going to be starting a new job in a mother, another month in the fall teaching okay. at a medical university here. And the woman that got me that job, we actually met in the bath in the <laughs> some bath. years ago. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can make good connections there too, but uh, if anybody has good hints on how to avoid conversations if you don't want to be accosted as a English teacher in the bath, please send us those at, anything goes, at gmail.com or our social media. Um, but yeah, so my experience coming to Hokkaido before smartphones and uh, it was just the beginning when you could make long-distance audio calls for free. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe it wasn't even really available the first year or two, because I still remember paying for the uh, phone cards. Yeah. And right before I came, some of my friends who were planning to come here called my future teammates and coworkers on the phone long distance. And it's like a $200 phone call for maybe two hours. Wow. Yeah. And they knew. They knew it was going to cost that much. Um, But yeah, back in the day, you had to like buy a prepaid card just to make sure you didn't like go way over budget or, and that tended to be cheaper rates, Mm -hmm. but I spent a lot of money on phone cards, talking to people. And then when we started to have availability to audio chats um, before video chats, before Skype came around. So it was a different world. And uh, I relied heavily on other people <laughs> to either speak to me in English or mm-hmm. um, I remember studying the hiragana and katakana after I got here. Yeah, I, I tried to learn before I came, but I was taking American Sign Language and Greek for my degree in university. And yes, I, I was studying for a Greek final and my my future co-worker, she had come for a visit back to our college my senpai, and uh, she brought me like photocopied pages from a kana textbook, hey. kana is easy or something, and uh, I opened that up and like, okay, I'm going to Japanese, and my brain just went, if you want to pass your Greek finals, don't even think about it, <laughs> Yeah. so I'm like sitting there praying in the ca- coffee shop, like, oh, please help me to learn Japanese quickly when I get there, so um, I did nothing, I couldn't read any of it. Nah. Wow. So I would sit on the subway and like practice reading the uh, simpler kanji and we were on a drive taking our uh, senior coworker to a ferry in Tomakomai which is okay. about a cu- couple hours I guess from where we were mm-hmm. and on the way there and the way back I actually memorized all of the katakana in about four hours. Oh.
1: That's pretty impressive. It took me a few weeks to really, <laughs> finally, feel like I had hiragana down. Katakana well, hiragana still tripped. me up. hiragana and that took okay. me
0: probably the same. But then the katakana, which is exactly the same phonetical sounds, it's just a yes. different shape. Um, and for people who are listening to this or are watching and don't really know much about the Japanese language yet, um, which would be a lot of the world, I think, there are two phonetical alphabet systems. One is used just in general, it's hiragana. And then the second one is exactly the same except for the shape. And that is used specifically for foreign words. So anything that's coming from English or French or German is going to be spelled in this katakana. katakana. And then you you have the kanji. Um, Sometimes they're called Chinese characters. I prefer Japanese characters because they're quite different from Chinese characters.
1: They have evolved quite a bit since <laughs> they're original Chinese characters, yes.
0: However, unlike Chinese or Korean, I believe, where one character has one reading, one sound, the Japanese characters actually have the original Chinese reading, as well as maybe two other ways to read it in Japanese.
1: If which means not up to 30 other ways to read it. <laughs> 30
0: other ways. So any character, when you combine it with other characters, is going to be read so differently. Um, yes. That makes Japanese very challenging to be proficient at in the reading and writing aspect.
1: Yes, Japanese in just the hiragana and katakana world is relatively simple, far mm-hmm. simpler, I think, than English is. Yes. The sounds that the mouth produces are, are limited to about 48. However, <laughs> when you combine it with the Chinese characters that have been adapted to fit an- the language that they were not initially designed for, it creates problems, which I find absolutely remarkable that Japan has been able to for hundreds and hundreds of years had almost universal literacy rate for a reading and writing system that is not by any means designed for the country that it is functioning in.
0: Wow, I've never really considered it from that point of view. But I also am very impressed that people learn to be fluent and proficient in in this language, even if that's the only one they speak, it's really incredible um, the, the tricks your brain has to go through to
1: yes, absolutely. figure these
0: things out. And you and I have worked together in mm-hmm. uh, settings that required pretty high level of Japanese uh, yes. fluency. And I've always been really impressed at your level because you're definitely beyond me.
1: That's not the case. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like it is.
1: No, I think, I think the level of Japanese that I have is impressive only in a specific setting of working kind of on a film set. Uh, There's a lot of um, specialized language that I had zero comprehension of before starting working as a cameraman two years ago. But as a result of necessity, I've I've kind of built into my my repertoire, however, it's not Japanese that you encounter in any other setting. And so from kind of an outside perspective, it looks like I have this incredible mastery of the language. However, it's only in a very specific field where I'm able to function fluently. And then outside of that, I struggle just as much as everybody else.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) We need to hang out outside of the studio then, because you absolutely just floored me with your ability to communicate and um, to translate uh, on the fly some very complex (laughs) things. But working. with Matthew or with Matthew Jones today on the show um, in the studio has been incredible, like the best experiences I've had. Oh, thank you. And uh, it's not flattery, it is honest truth. Um, when you are a narrator in the studio and there is no other native English speaker anywhere to be found to consult yes. with, and you come across something that is just not reading quite right, and most of the time, I feel like I know what it is. I can I find the problem. If my client trusts me, um, I don't have to argue too much. I can just say, hey, this, this doesn't sound right. We need to change it. This would be better. But it's like it's a lot of mental g- gymnastics to do that on the fly. Yes. Um, and then I'd say about half the time, if not more, the client will either argue against changing it because they don't understand it, or maybe it was approved through a long process already of people that should have known better or maybe just they don't and uh, occasionally end up reading things in a way that makes me cringe knowing that it's not um, but you always have to fight choose your battles but having you in the studio um, able to back me up on things or many cases you had suggestions that were even better than what I had come up with. that that's always been very refreshing and uh, I leave those those jobs feeling like hundred percent confident that we did the best thing we could so hint, oh, hint, well, if anybody needs an amazing professional in-studio cameraman slash editor Matthew Jones is your guy oh,
1: thank you no, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely a concerted effort in in that atmosphere I have been incredibly impressed at your ability to function as an English narrator in this setting, particularly in Sapporo, which is not necessarily the most the most developed film atmosphere in Japan. Mm-hmm. Most of what functions professionally in a production unit is Tokyo or Kyoto or Osaka. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: However, Sapporo being separate from the main island of Japan has developed its kind of own atmosphere here as well. However, it certainly has less English influence and mm-hmm. in, in kind of less of a resource for English speakers in that world. Mm-hmm. but to be able to work with the material that you've had for so long and 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 develop your own kind of way of making the best out of it you can. Because oftentimes the beginning is is quite difficult. Yeah. <laughs> rough drafts are very rough. Oh
0: my goodness, uh, yeah.
1: Uh, most of the work that I've been doing as a cameraman in, in Hokkaido is with the Ministry of the Environment, producing content for the national parks here. Mm -hmm. And the Ministry of the Environment has their own approved translation for all of the signage and for all of the different location names within Hokkaido. And the approved translation does not necessarily mean it is the best translation. however it's the one that the government has decided is is the standards to be used and as a native english speaker oftentimes you'll come across words or even grammatical punctuation or the capitalization of it that is not natural Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and you'll make a suggestion actually these words shouldn't be stuck together they're two Mm -hmm. separate words that should be split apart um which seems to be a, an easy, easy fix. Mm-hmm. When you read it out loud, it doesn't even sound any different. However, when you've got it on the page and you're printing it, these should be separate. Yeah. Um, and then oftentimes you'll be surprised with the kind of the resistance that you meet because it doesn't meet the approved standard. Right. Uh, and, and working in that world can be difficult.
0: Yeah, it, it has been a challenge and occasionally quite quite stressful or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, especially for me, the way I look at it is that my voice is very recognizable mm-hmm. and uh, I don't want to do something that's going to be embarrassing or, <laughs> yeah. you know, like yeah. uh, decrease the, the quality of my portfolio, I guess you could say.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> so um, I really try my best uh, for my own sake. It's a bit selfish, but also I really want to elevate the level um, the quality of you know work here when we're representing Hokkaido, especially, or any any part of Japan, I've I've done work with other things outside of Hokkaido as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um,
0: yeah, it's really it's an interesting world, uh, and it is. It's a culture that you don't really encounter in any other field. I feel. I
1: think uh, so I think so. Yeah, working as uh, in media production in Japan. Uh, it for a Japanese company, I think gives you a, a different perspective than if you were to work independently within, within Japan, right. kind of uh, the rules that you're bound by mm-hmm. uh, and kind of the creativity that you're able to express is a little bit different.
0: Right. So I'm a freelancer. Um, therefore, I don't really have as many rules to follow because yeah. <laughs> I can always accept a job or, or not and mm-hmm. uh, kind of Demand certain things, yeah. or just you know decide that job is not for me. But in your case, you're working full time for
1: full time for a Japanese a, company. Japanese
0: company a couple yes. of years now. Is there anything you'd like to share with us about uh, the pros and cons or the uh,
1: yes? I, I would say that probably the ideal environment to work in in Japan would be if you can, work in Japan for a non-Japanese company. Mm-hmm. it's uh, and, and this is one thing that I, I really appreciated about working with the JET program, is that they do a very good job of on um, the institutional level. It's different for everybody when they actually get here and they're working kind of on a personal level with their board of education or the teachers that they're working with but on an institutional level of creating basic work protections for the people coming here. They're, they prevent ALTs from working overtime, which in Japan is a pretty harsh environment of mm. the expectation to, to work unpaid overtime as mm. just kind of the general way things work. Um, and working as an ALT, that was never an issue for me. However, when I made the switch to working as a cameraman in Sapporo. As I was interviewing for the company, they they mentioned to me, you will be working more than you've probably ever worked in your life. And And my idea was, well, 40 hours a week that I've worked up until now was, you know, that's that's not bad at all, I can, I can do more than that, that's fine. Um, however, sometimes when you work 80 to 100 hours a week, you realize that that's, that's quite, uh, it wears on you physically and then not yes. being Reimbursed for that can be pretty mentally straining as well.
0: Yes, and I think people who are not familiar with that part of uh, Japanese culture might actually be scratching their heads or their ears, going, "Did I hear that right?" Um, Eighty to a hundred hours a week is actually not, not unheard of. It's it's not even that uncommon. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and the pressure here with the the societal, you know. Everything must be equal, don't stand out, um, even yes. if you have legal rights or yes. uh, recourses yes. to take your vacation days or to leave on time. Um, because everyone else is going to be continue working. If you try to do the, I would say, independent American mentality, at least, of, well, this is my right and I can take off at the end of the working day when I want to and I don't have to work overtime, that That could be true, but you probably will experience a lot of pressure from the people around you or you will be yeah. um, not accepted as the normal part of the team. You might not even be able to keep your job long. I'm not sure yeah. about that.
1: I, so what has made it so difficult for me and I am, all through college as well, I've always been a, a very firm believer that that rest is is a critical component of success and taking, having free time where you're not at all trying to really improve or, or function on a work level and having time that's completely unrelated to that. To be able to express yourself freedom uh, freely and to be able to grow in ways that you're not really expecting is necessary. <laughs> um, And I I kind of assumed that I would be able to, to some degree as an individual, incorporate that into the the work atmosphere that I'm working now and be able to perhaps influence the other people around me and kind of find some sort of middle ground to work with there. Mm -hmm. Um, What has made that not be the case though, is that the company that I work for, and I think this is probably true for a lot of Japanese companies, is that we are working with the the least amount of people required to do the absolute most amount of work. Mm-hmm. And and this kind of comes down to the company functioning financially, hiring more people mm-hmm. uh, is not necessarily within their budget. Uh, and so in order to kind of have everybody make their the, the amount of income that they're guaranteed to, it requires mm-hmm. us to work more than we would really mm-hmm. be expected to in an American environment. And to be able to step back from that and then suddenly say you know what i'm going to take next week off or i'm going to take this weekend off Mm -hmm. if you have somebody to cover for you it's really easy to do however if you're working in an environment where there is nobody to cover Mm -hmm. for you and you were to say next saturday we have a shoot scheduled uh however it's my girlfriend's birthday i'd like to take that day off Mm -hmm. suddenly nobody is going to that shoot because somebody the other two people that you're working with also have different shoots on the other side of the island that they have to be at. Mm-hmm. So it creates this environment where it's not just that you feel pressured not to take work off, it's no longer even possible to take right. that work off. And yeah. so that that can be pretty stressful and, and kind of it wears on you for a while, I think.
0: And um, do you feel that that is fairly common, not just with your company, but across the board?
1: Uh, within the the media production worlds that i have encountered in Sapporo Mm -hmm. i have not worked at all in Tokyo or in Osaka um i would say that's generally universal Mm -hmm. uh and particularly within Sapporo and this is kind of a not just limited to film or media it's limited it's kind of applies to all work environments in, in Hokkaido is that most of the younger generation growing up here, once they reach a working age after graduating from high school or from college, they will then move to a larger city outside of Hokkaido. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. kind of a continual drain of a younger population within Hokkaido that's mm-hmm. constantly moving to either Tokyo or some of the larger cities like Osaka. Right. Um, yeah. And so there's just no new generation coming up. So for example, in my company, I'm 26, the next youngest person is 46, and there's nobody in between. And then above him, the next youngest person is in their 50s, and then above that, everybody's 60s and 70s, which is an entirely different world of thinking versus, I mean, most of the people that I work with, their base level for film production is 16 millimeter film. (laughs) So they're still functioning on the idea that, a uh, hundred meters of film costs this much. Mm-hmm. You'll burn through a hundred meters of film in about two and a half minutes. So, how much film should you shoot in a day? Whereas now, that's it's a completely different. It's completely different. World yeah, the equipment that we use is different. And digital. Absolutely. And, yeah.
0: Right. Um, I also have spent a good deal of time uh, working on location filming with different crews. Um, yes. And I would have to say the youngest person on any of those camera crews tends to be maybe 30s or 40s and then it's like up towards close to retirement age or even yes. beyond retirement age. And uh, the schedules can be quite hard for me. Um, I'm usually mm-hmm. on location from three, four, five days, six. is the longest I've been on. And they do their best um, for, for me because I have to look fresh on camera. Uh, yes. <laughs> to let me have rest times in the car when we're driving from place to place or not demand a whole lot. So I'm not carrying heavy equipment or um, having to be on all that time. I know that my coworkers who are the cameraman and the sound engineers um, have a much heavier burden than mine, but even I can get a little burnt out um after a few days of you yeah, know waking absolutely. up at three thirty or 4 in the morning to go dry kelp yes. on the beach and then yes having <laughs> to film a sunset you know at seven or and then like maybe a dinner evening scene and so you're just on a really tough schedule and then once my part is done i come home but these people are also editing and uh racing towards deadlines
1: and absolutely yeah and oftentimes most of the shoots will overlap so as soon as you've finished you have got no no turnover and you're immediately off on a different location as well
0: right well even when we would get back to the hotel at the end of a filming day for me it's like okay maybe we have dinner together and then time to go to bed and have a bath in the onsen whatever but my coworkers will be charging batteries checking the film of the day making sure that they got everything um and that's more and more hours of work and so it's definitely a sleep deprivation culture.
1: <laughs> yes, I uh, <laughs> average far less hours of sleep than I would like and have ever been used to in my life. I, I have mm. noticed that my my body has gotten somewhat used to the having less amounts of sleep than I had growing up, mm. but um, I don't know how much of that is is getting used to it or how much of it is kind of forgetting what a, a nice baseline is. <laughs>
0: Well, I've never had a normal sleep schedule that I can recall. I have a pre-running okay. sleep schedule, so yeah, um, operating on varied amounts of sleep without a steady baseline is just my mo. So I can't sympathize or empathize too much in that regard, or I yeah, can I, completely I, empathize just because I do it to myself. But okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that, that's different for everybody, What what's yeah. healthy and what's not.
0: So right now, it sounds like this whole um, experience working as an ALT where you've got guidelines and protections that allow you to actually have more of a normal lifestyle, um, sounds pretty cushy. Why and did you switch?
1: That's a <laughs> good question. Dog? Yeah. So I, I guess probably to answer your first question, which you initially asked, which I hadn't really addressed. Of of being an ALT. Yeah,
0: let's go back Um, to that, uh, because a lot of people who are maybe going to be listening to this are interested in becoming ALTs. Uh, What does ALT stand for, actually? So
1: it stands for uh, Assistant Language Teacher. in in Japan, the name, the title has changed over the years. At one point, it was Assistant English Teacher. However, uh, not all language instruction in Japan, particularly in Hokkaido, is just English now. Mm -hmm. There are ALTs you are requested to teach Russian mm. as well, particularly in some of the kind of farther north port cities like Wakkanai or Nemoro. Right. Uh, they have a fair amount of trade that goes along with the Russian sailors as well that kind of come through the area. Um, but the ALT, you are, as the name suggests, an assistant language teacher. So you are traditionally paired with a as an elementary school teacher, you'd be paired with the homeroom teacher who's then teaching one group of usually somewhere between 20 and 40 students and all of the generalized subjects like you would find in an an American education system as well. And then when they teach their English classes, you get brought in as a way to kind of facilitate the English to provide some sort of native speaker. Mm. uh, Element element, yes, element, thank you, into that world. Uh, And the way that it functions is different for every school. So there's Mm -hmm. some schools that where you will be asked to basically handle all of the instruction on your own. When you walk into the classroom, the homeroom teacher will, will always supposed to be present legally, they have to be present because you're not actually a licensed educator in japan so you're not mm-hmm. allowed to be left alone with students mm-hmm. uh, but they might not be present in their participation
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so you'll kind of have to be in charge of the class provide all of the content how will the students engage with english uh mm-hmm. how will you present the material that uh, is either in the textbook or supplement it with something else that you would like to to bring bring into the classroom and that amount of freedom also varies from school to school. So I was teaching in a town called Engaru and teaching in kind of a sub district of Engaru called Ikutahara, which has only about a population of 2,500 people spread out over a fairly large area uh, in kind of the rural countryside. So most of the students that I were teaching, their parents were either dairy farmers uh, or had some sort of Kind of in the fishing industry or kind of in in, an agricultural industry. Mm -hmm. So their perspective of learning English was that it's something that they do not need to learn, which Mm -hmm. by most accounts, their encounter of native English speakers is limited to maybe one, two, or three people per year Mm -hmm. outside of myself working as an English teacher there.
0: Sure.
1: And so for them, there's not. A, a real sense of necessity, which I think is by all means understandable. I had the kind of the same perspective learning Spanish. Mm-hmm. However, growing up in Colorado, where there's a very large population of native <laughs> Spanish speakers, uh, is, is even less acceptable for me to have that mm, uh, kind mentality, of mentality. But um, you do, and so, yeah. Yes. So it can be very difficult to teach because mm-hmm. not, many of the students are interested in learning it. Right. Um, but for my situation, I was given a lot of freedom okay. by the Board of Education and by the teachers that I was working with. And I taught elementary school from first grade up to middle school, which is the American equivalent of uh, freshman year at high school. Right. And I taught at five schools mm-hmm. in kind of all around this different region and each of those schools i taught on a different day okay. and then on
0: so you were at a different school from monday through friday basically yes
1: yeah so I, I rotated through each of these schools and i i kind of did a weird schedule as well where i would teach half days at some of the elementary schools and then switch to the middle school in the in the afternoon i see because because they're usually right next to each other so you just okay, kind of yeah. walk down the street and then you're at the middle school Right. Um, so it would make preparing for classes pretty difficult cause you kind of thinking, okay, I've got first graders in the morning, I've got to do like numbers one through 10. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I've got middle schoolers in the afternoon and i have to teach, you know, how do you correctly use relative pronouns? And <laughs> so kind of doing this mental acrobatics of, of trying to create content that is actually age appropriate while right. bouncing around through all of these different age groups mm-hmm. took took a while for me to get any sort of sense of proficiency at mm-hmm. and I did I only was an ALT for two years and I think mm-hmm. I, th- I think that by my first year was the first time that I had developed any sense of confidence in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that the, the entire first year that I taught was a ent- complete year of experimentation, okay. most of it not successful <laughs> did, uh, and, and, you and have any fairly training? demoralizing. Do you have
0: any training as a teacher before coming into this job?
1: I had zero training as a teacher. All of my training was purely as a student in the classroom. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, I think I, as well, only took a two week TESOL course before I came here. Okay. Uh, so, and other than tutoring in college, um, I really didn't have any teaching credentials or experience. So, definitely if you're looking to come here as an English teacher, be it the JET ALT program or uh, independently, like I did, or working through a school, uh, yeah. there's a lot of learning on the job.
1: <laughs> I would say it's entirely learning on the job, um, yeah. Yeah. and and for me that was pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I really enjoyed <laughs> being able to have the opportunity to be in a classroom with students, and it gave me kind of a very valuable set of experience that has a, has helped me now as a cameraman working in Japan because it allowed me to basically, in a very short period of time, experience elementary school and middle school life in Japan, which is, you know, this is the foundation of Japanese society that every person in Japan has experienced growing up while they're going through their most critical development processes as a, as a child into an adult. Nice. And so for two years to be able to do this and to be able to see, oh, okay, the way that this, the teacher's room is set up in an elementary and middle school classroom or in, in, the, in the teacher's room is the way that almost all Japanese companies are set up, that mm-hmm. you will have basically the most important person in the room will be will be seated here and then to their you know, the left or the right will always be the person who's in charge of finances. Then you kind of got like the vice principal. And this usually is, is basically the same for all Japanese work environments. And then, I
0: never considered that before, but that is 100% correct. And walking into the teacher's staff room at any school is a bit mind boggling. <laughs> at yes. first, I think like at first, what it is absolutely going is. on here? And I have not yeah. spent that much time at like institutionalized schools. Yes, okay. Um, mm-hmm. But I've been in enough teacher's rooms and have always found them quite uncomfortable honestly as far as like the atmosphere. Yeah, and
1: the atmosphere, I I'm teaching at five schools, uh, the atmosphere at each school was very different. Mm. And the other thing that's very prevalent in public sector in Japan, be it teachers or working at kind of, I, for example, a state-run hospital or working in the civil service is the notion of tanking, which is basically movement between different work offices. So usually... Transfers. Transfers. Public servants will usually be at one given place for a period of three to five years, and then they will be transferred to a different office. And the this, this kind of functions systematically as a way to prevent corruption mm-hmm. of... Everybody if they're in the same environment and they're kind of constantly working with the same people then even though they're public servants They may perhaps have outside influence From the relationships that they've developed that will influence the way that they're uh perhaps Working with students or working with in kind of a civil service working with welfare funding things like that uh, and so they get moved and this will basically mean every single year, somewhere between you know one or 10 of the teachers that you're working with will just suddenly change and then new teachers right. will come in. So the mm-hmm. environment is always changing.
0: Right. Um, uh, and and yeah. that
1: can either be good or it can be really difficult. Uh, sure. I encountered both of those where uh, kind of one of the teachers I had worked with, we had a fairly poor chemistry, uh, mm-hmm. just kind of the ways that we approached teaching were, were were pretty drastically different um, and it made working with each other quite difficult but then however when she was then transferred and a new teacher came in it kind of created a new uh, opportunity to try and, and develop a new relationship however on the exact opposite I had another teacher who I was had uh, an excellent time working with and we functioned really well in the classroom and I felt like we had really developed this kind of uh, useful and dynamic set of of teaching patterns, and then and then they were transferred, and somebody else new came in mm-hmm. with zero uh, influence on that world at all. So it's, right. it's difficult.
0: Yeah, for sure. And this, um, thank you for that explanation. The tanking or transfer system that's so prevalent in Japanese companies, and especially mm-hmm. the the government side, um, has always been baffling to me a little bit on why. They insist people move every three to five years.
1: Yes. Yeah. And,
0: I, and I do get that, especially from the trying to avoid corruption and such within government work. Um, and of course, teachers are included in that civil yeah. servant role. But um, from a personal life, family life perspective, um, you end up with a lot of families who get split. Yes. Uh, especially with like if the husband is traditionally the the... When earning the main income and in that kind of position um, rather than uproot the entire family and sell your home or you know rent it out etc depending on your situation um, the other partner and children will remain behind so they can stay in their school system yes. and uh, you'll have one partner living on their own and you're also paying like double rent <laughs> in yes. many cases and so it's not really getting you ahead financially Um, and in fact, just on the civil servant, I have a friend who, uh, works in like Tokyo area and Mm -hmm. both she and her husband were working as civil servants in different departments. And, uh, the husband got an offer to be transferred overseas to Singapore for three years. So the family decided to take it so that their children could have a multicultural experience. However, the wife, even though she's a civil servant, was not allowed to do any work um okay. so she was not allowed to get another yeah. job all yeah. overseas she had to write reports for her job just to show she was doing some kind of self-improvement or something yes. to keep her position mm-hmm. but not earning the income um so her position's guaranteed that she'll be able to return back to work when she gets there but i felt that was extremely unjust when you have people working for the same <laughs> System that you require one person to just basically give up their career for that period of time, so the other part, other spouse can further theirs. Um, it's a bit crazy to yeah, me.
1: It is and amount of control. Yeah, and I think this is the system that exists here is is one of the main reasons why, if you watch any sort of anime or any sort of Japanese television drama. In most cases, if it's has to do with kind of a middle school or a high school age main character, you will almost never see the their father figure in, in the drama or in the mm-hmm. anime at all. They're almost always totally non existent.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and and that's that's because that's generally the case in in mm-hmm. kind of that that general, that normal work-life family dynamic in Japan is that the the husband, if he is the main, main kind of breadwinner for the house, will not be huh. present, exactly. <laughs> Whether they are
0: yeah. transferred to a completely different area, or they're just working overtime, or having to go out to drinking parties to keep their work relationships uh, established. Uh, yeah, I think the presence of the main worker, is uh, not felt at home like we would expect in other cultures. So uh, that is something to be aware of. But if you are going to join the ALT or JET program, as it's also known, uh, what does JET stand for?
1: Uh, JET is Japan Exchange Teaching. If I, right. See, it's I believe a this common it
0: misunderstanding is. that you would stand for English teachers. English, but yes, exchange, Japan although exchange. there
1: are, exactly, there's nobody coming from Japan going to the US to teach Japanese. Uh, no. <laughs> which it's, not, it's not that kind of exchange. However, the JET program is kind of an interesting thing where it has, it's been around, I think, for close to 40 years in Japan. Mm-hmm. Not, not quite 40 years. Um, and it functions nominally as a way to facilitate English learning in Japan. And by an objective standpoint, it has not been very successful mm-hmm. in terms of increasing English uh, comprehensive levels in Japan. Mm-hmm. However, as a cultural exchange platform, I think that the JET program is, is quite successful. Mm-hmm. It allows uh, individuals from many different English-speaking companies, not just the U.S., However, the U.S. provides the majority of the applicants for the program. Uh, There are participants from South Africa, there are participants from Jamaica, there are participants from England, from all around the world where somebody who speaks English. To come to Japan, to live here, uh, and to be able to interact with a younger generation of people who, for many of the areas in Japan, they're only direct influence of a non-Japanese perspective will be provided for them by that
0: Mm -hmm.
1: English exchange teacher right? Uh, and so it gives you I think a phenomenal opportunity to be a cultural ambassador that Mm -hmm. uh, you can can use or abuse one of Mm -hmm. the two Uh, and and so there's a lot of responsibility with, with being a cultural ambassador of what kind of culture will you represent? For example, being an American citizen who is white and who is a male coming to Japan and being in a small town where I am the only American citizen living in that town Mm -hmm. to then represent to all of the people that I'm working with and interacting with what is going on in the U.S. During a time where I first came here in 2016, uh, I had been here for about two months, and then we—that uh, was when President Trump was then elected, and and at that point in time in Japan, uh, there was a lot of anxiety about President Trump being elected because of remarks that he had been made that he had made regarding to the military bases that the U.S. has in Japan.
0: Mm. So
1: Japan, as a country, is limited by their constitution to not have a a outward focused military. They can have a self-defense force, which is what it nominally is. Uh, and, and practically, it is a military by, by all respects. However, they rely heavily on the security that the U.S. provides, mm-hmm. uh, particularly so within the sense of Japan and how it relates to Russia, South Korea, North Korea and mm-hmm. China. And so for President Trump during that period of time, before he had been elected to say that uh, the U.S. should not be funding any of Japan's protection services, was a fairly large statement to to be felt across Japan's country from a security perspective. Uh, And to be in this small town and to kind of suddenly have this sense of tension regarding Japan's security nationally, and then be being asked questions by by parents of well, what do you think about president mm-hmm. trump uh what do you think about shinzo abe the prime minister of japan uh mm-hmm. and, and to realize that the words that you use there actually have have some degree of impact on these on how these people then perceive the u.s right per yeah. us as a person uh is is interesting but mm-hmm. Uh, can be kind of a difficult dynamic to to walk and and I've, I've really really been feeling that quite now of how how should i talk to people in japan about what's going on in the us with rely with regards to racial tension right um, and then being being a white american citizen the perspective that i have to offer on that is is very limited and and not by any means comprehensive uh and and I don't have the authority to then say this is how it is in the US because right, right. from most of the perspective I just don't know or I've never experienced it.
0: That's 100% true and in my case even when it comes to questions about pronunciation of English, yes. um, I became very aware early on here after meeting so many different people from other countries that speak English like New Zealand and Australia, Jamaica, yes. etc that the American way or even the Midwest American way of saying something is not like the only way to do it so yes even if I feel sometimes my students or friends are maybe even just making a mistake with their pronunciation I tend to couch it in the sense of well you know this is how we say it where I'm from but that could be a British English pronunciation or (laughs) perhaps because honestly I don't know and so when it comes to trying to talk about uh, And I generally do not talk about politics or religion or those things if I can avoid them, just find it's uh, less tension all around. But when you get asked direct questions and you need to have an answer, um, I do try to just, but the one thing I always come to is you cannot generalize America, you know, to one kind of, like Japan is a very homogenous culture in many ways still after being a closed country and still being a close country in many ways, that you can generalize things, even if you shouldn't. Um, to how culture is here, but in the U.S. you have so, yeah. many, so much diversity and uh, people of color will have a very different experience than someone who's like you and I growing up in the way that we have. So you just, mm-hmm. I always just like, you can't generalize it. Everybody's different. You have to ask that person or... You know try to point them in the direction of people that might have more valid opinions i don't know it's yeah, a really absolutely. really tough thing to answer
1: It's really difficult yeah and i'm not certainly i don't know necessarily know if i could say you can generalize japan however when you're talking about the experience of the u.s there are things that just have no cultural equivalent here mm-hmm. and so it can be difficult to talk about something for example that you have almost no vocabulary to talk about in japanese right um and and yeah, it's difficult.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. So um, we are kind of getting close to an hour mark uh, okay. for this episode, but uh, Matthew, we really appreciate that you uh, taught us about being an ALT and the experiences in rural Hokkaido. Also what it's like to work for a Japanese company in the uh, film production industry. Okay. And I feel like there's, we've just scratched the surface with you. Yeah, um, it wasn't, uh, <laughs> like I could say a lot more. We, I know you could. Um, and I would love to have you back on the show again sometime down the line. Uh, but Absolutely. If you have yeah. questions for Matthew, is there a way that people might be able to reach you if they want to know, uh, or do you have any kind of like social media presence or, or anything that you're trying uh, to
1: promote? I- Am on Instagram, although okay. I almost never upload anything. Almost all of the content that I produce now is is kind of contractually not owned by me, so I'm
0: mm, right, not necessarily yeah.
1: active. But my if you said
0: Oh, we lost your sounds. You let me unmute you.
1: <laughs> Sorry. <There> you go. <laughs> I, I had my phone on my spacebar to relieve the temporary unmute and I just moved that. Okay yeah um my instagram name is matthew rob jones no spaces I okay receive M-A-T-E-H-E-W any message requests
0: there H E W, rob oh. r-o-w r-o-b, rob, jones. R-O-B. yes R-O-B. r-o-b sorry yes yeah early morning for me here uh Absolutely. <laughs> so matthew yeah. rob jones uh instagram you can find him there and uh definitely he's living an interesting life as a cameraman in japan so uh we look forward to hearing more of your adventures down the line as always you can find us on instagram at anything goes hokkaido also twitter uh, we don't really post there directly so instagram or facebook uh, those handles would be the best way to reach us of course email at gmail.com i am delana miyazaki on instagram twitter and facebook would be delana live for my professional artist page Yes, I am known as the Voice of Sapporo, even if I made that name up myself, but I do more than half of the announcements for public transportation in the city and beyond. So I think- You can't
1: come here and not hear your voice.
0: It would be very difficult. You'd have to be isolated to uh, driving a car and not going in public. (laughs) Yes. So uh, yes, thank you so much, Matthew. And uh, everyone, if you're out there, keep, keep on keeping on. And uh, this is Anything Goes Hokkaido. Shitake! Thanks for having me. Awesome, Matthew. Thank you. So I'll just stop our recording now. And uh, that was great. As always, we give a huge thank you to everyone who makes this podcast possible, especially our viewers and listeners. Thank you so much. If you would like to be on the show, please contact us at anythinggoeshokkaido at gmail.com and be sure to check out our Patreon campaign and see what special goodies wait you there i'll have to put something up actually (laughs) okay guys you hang in there tight we're gonna get through this and see you next week